A locavore is a person who chooses to consume food that is grown, raised or produced locally. This is the Locavore Podcast, brought to you by White's IGA. Welcome to the Locavore Podcast. I'm Ros White and this is the podcast where we dig deep into the stories behind the hundreds of locally sourced, artisan, bespoke and innovative products available to you in one location at White's IGA on the Sunshine Coast. The Locavore program was created to showcase and highlight to our customers where their food comes from and help them to connect to the families who create it. Today I am chatting with one of our most fascinating producers. In fact, I have never seen a more passionate and interesting producer from the myriad of farmers and creators we source from. But let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. A boat builder by trade. It was the year 1974 and Charlie Hacker found himself helping out a mate with some queen rearing and bee moving. So alas, almost 50 years on, Charlie continues to be enthralled by what became his profession. A Sunshine Coast honey producer, the owner and operator of the Bee Man Honey, which is based in Pomona near Noosa on the beautiful Sunshine Coast. Described by some as a living legend, certainly someone I admire and respect and generally enjoy catching up with. And in his own words, it's quite thrilling to be on a honey flow chase, building the bees up and re-queening the hives. My goodness, that sounds exciting. I'm thrilled to have Charlie with me here today. Welcome, Charlie. Good morning, Ros, and nice to be here too. Yeah, (laughs) it is great. Honestly, that the honey flow chase, building the bees and re-queening the hives, have you not, it, it just conjures up all sorts of things in your mind about what bees and, and you know, the day-to-day of, of, you know, who knew that bee hiving and honey collecting could be so, so exciting? Yeah, well, it's more than what you could expect to be exciting. It's uh, a very, very big job to cover every one of those things in a in a uh, happy way and a scientific way and how we look after the country. Yeah, absolutely. We, we work. And we're going to dig into all those mm. sort of those, um, the aspects of what you do um, today, which is very exciting. But just to start, you were a boat builder in your early life, but your honey has been a staple on the shelves at White's IGA for seems like decades, Charlie. <laughs> so how did you become so passionate about bees and how did you transition from boat builder to beekeeper and producer of pure local honey. So in the early 70s, the um, boat building industry had a bit of a recession, like most industries do. And so I, my time off boat building, I worked for myself to earn money. And at the same time, I helped an old family called Rosses at Banoa at Southport. Granny was about 85 and granddad um, John Rosser was not my granddad but John Rosser was about 95 and I used to lift the boxes and um, go around with them and learn how to run all the bees around Southport, Numanbar Valley and then as the history goes on uh, what's happened down there with real estate and mm. what, what what does happen, <laughs> progress. True. Changing landscape because Banoa is very built up now. But of course, in those, how old were you? Without giving away your age, how old were you then, Charlie? Oh, I would have been twenty-five. I retired boat building when I was twenty-five. Yeah, twenty-five years old. So, what sort of boats were they? They were sailing boats, game fishing boats, and prawn trawlers. Wow! And you're still involved in 
you know, with Sally, Sally. but we can talk mm. about we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yep. So you helped out this family, and you're a boat builder, but you kind of took an interest with Grandma and Grandpa mm. at Banoa, which is obviously a very different mm. landscape now. How did that lead you to becoming a, the the principal beekeeper? Oh well, mainly after learning that, we had to kind of get a real job being a beekeeper. So we moved to Mullaney in in the early seventies. Um, Once we found um, where we were going, how far we were going with the bees, we moved out of Mullaney and moved halfway between Mullaney and the sailing at Lake Ataraba, so we moved to Pomona. So, Charlie, you spent those early years of your life, uh, even though you were a boat builder, with your, well, you refer to them as grandma and granddad, but they weren't really. They're just no, kind of a nice, you know, name a, a lovely relationship you have with them in Banoa near in Southport, Southport on the Gold, on the Gold Coast. Um, John and Betsy Rossa. And so they obviously meant a lot to you and they had a big influence on that early part of your life and, and sort of that step into what is now your 50-year-long so far mm. almost. Oh, location. yeah. They, they, um, in those days you, they were um, stationary beekeepers around the um, Southport, Numanbar Valley and the Lost World. They moved their bees, they, let's say they moved their queens from place to place, but they had to put a new queen from place to place and that's how they used to migrate their bees, by little nukes with the young queen to the new place they put them. They'd build up and get honey and then they'd move the queens again to the next place mm. with new queens. Then there was a, another family, the Smith family, which the Smiths were the uh, they. John John Russell looked after um, Tim Smith's bees when he went to the war, and then he gathered all the honey that he got from the Smiths' hives. And when they came back from the war and were demobbed, he gave them all their honey, so they had to sell it. So that's how they the um, Capilano Honey Factory started up because he gave them all their honey their bees had gathered for the last five years. So how did, how did the Capilanos get involved with the Smith family? Oh, they, they knew each other before the war because they were beekeepers. Yeah. Right, okay. Mm. So the Smith family started Capilano, yep. which we all know it's a fairly familiar mm. sort of brand, brand of honey, brand, isn't yeah. it? We see that everywhere. So Miss Mrs Smith's still alive today. Jill, but, yeah. Yeah. And the Capilano honey name was actually brought about, I understand. Capilano v- Valley in Canada. In Canada where mm. they met. met yeah. Isn't that a beautiful mm. connection? Yeah, yeah, there you go. See, every all these amazing stories, who knew? So, Charlie, take me through a day in the life of Charlie. So you're a beekeeper, you get up in the morning, have your coffee and your egg and bacon <laughs> roll and you charge ready for the day, so you go down. How do you maintain those bees? Take me through the process of maintaining your bees, harvesting the bees, processing the beautiful honey into jars and then delivering them to Whiteside GA stores for... Mm our customers to enjoy how long well like what is that process oh well mainly what happens is we get up reasonably early if we haven't got up earlier unload bees in another new spot and then um load load a vehicle big one or a little one depending what we're doing whether we're just changing boxes over to get the honey off or rearing queens so um then we go out to the bee sites depending um where they are, whether they're on the north north of the Sunshine Coast or further north or further south, Caloundra. And whatever the, uh, we're doing that day for those hives, we either lift the honey. There's a lot of modern ways of taking the honey off now, which is a lot easier than the old days. And we have loaders on our vehicles where we don't have to break our back to um, lift all the honey. 
and uh, take the honey off and then we take it home and uh, extract it. And then on Wednesdays, we kind of pack the honey for Thursday, Friday's deliveries on the Sunshine Coast to the IGAs. And um, then on the weekend, we kind of go sailing. Ah, that's the best part, isn't it? That's your reward. So there you go, literally, Charlie's the, the keeper of the beautiful bees, the creator of the beautiful honey, the harvester and the freighter. What a, an amazing process, that lovingly taking that beautiful fresh honey from nurturing it and, and then delivering it through to for families to enjoy on the Sunshine Coast. So when you're talking about rearing queens what does that mean uh rearing queens is very very different to what you would know as a um a bull over a cow because of the male and female bit where bees are female so getting a strain of bee that suits your climate in your area suits the pollen value of of the trees and the bushes they work is very very difficult to get a proper strain that suits you because the two species of bees the other way there's three but there's two we work for Italian and Caucasian has to be a second and a third cross to be a hybrid vigor to get honey that is so complicated goodness who would who would know and so you were saying all what all females or all queens are f- no all, all, all bees queen- are, are females bees are so i've females. got a lot of worker girls something like maybe three or four million <laughs> wow so the drone a drone is a is a, a pure bread pure from the queen an unfertilized egg so what the when you're looking at the drone you can tell by the color of her by him and by what the queen would be look like because it's a straight progeny from the queen, like inbreeding from the queen. So when I was a little kid growing up at my little one teacher school I went to in the in the bush, we had a beehive. You know, we learnt about bees and that puffer thing that you settles uh, smoker, them down. Yeah, yeah. Except we were covered in head to toe. And I noticed, Charlie, <laughs> you don't. You just go in with bare hands and everything else. And there was the work of the drone and the queen mm. – I understood that the drone was lazy. Is this right? The drone uh, doesn't do much. The workers, well, they're, you know, girls, they're working <laughs> girls. But the drone, apparently, it's, is he, is that just like a myth or? No, it- no, the drone doesn't do much. And they um, come wintertime, anywhere, say, south of Brisbane, they would, drones would get kicked out of the hive. Well, so they should if they're not they're pulling not, their not weight, pulling Charlie. Weight. Hey, right. <laughs> so your honey's not just honey; it's it's got all different flavours and colours and textures, and I understand that that is created through the different trees and the, and the seasons and the flowers. Say your tea tree or the river gum honey. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of create all those different variants and species of honey? Do you blend them? Mainly when we're chasing the um, tree that's flowering, the old honey would have been taken off the hives and then we'd be putting the hives on blue gum, tea tree, narrowleaf ironbark, grey ironbark, pink box. And what happens is the flavour of those honeys, as the hive produces them, you know, there's 95,000 bees in a box so they produce That's a, a lot of bees. They uh, produce a pinhead load of honey each trip. Yes. So then you take that off and then you put a fresh box on there and that's how you can keep your honey separate, the flavouring ah. separate. 
So then you can decanter that into, yeah. so you extract harvest it, it and extract, extract it, it and, and, and put it into yeah. different kind of drums. Yeah. Drums. Yeah. So the Bee Man honey, which is the one that you harvest and create, and we, mm. we have in our stores, does that have all those different types of, could you, may there be a small kind of different flavour profile in some of those throughout the different seasons? Or Yeah, there will be a different flavour, especially now while we've, you know, we've had 15 years of drought and um, especially now we've had rain, we've seemed to notice there's a lot more um, wildflowers flowering that can put a little bit of taste in the honey from, from a tea tree or from a uh, blue gum or an iron bark. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Here's a bit of a an interesting one to throw at you, Charlie, now. I read somewhere that bees can recognise human faces. Is that true? Do your bees oh. recognise you? And if so, do you get mates rates? Do they do they kind of like work a bit harder because they love Charlie? No, I think you'll find that uh, uh, people assume a lot of stuff about bees and they don't know much. Number one, bees' eye is like the facet of a diamond ring. They fly by the sun on that facet. So they go out and come back and that's why everybody says the bees, when a cloud comes across the sun, the bees all come back. Wow. That's how they see. That's oh. how they fly. Some scientists seem to think they might have hawk eyes, but I don't think so. No, so they're just they're utilising all the natural elements. To- For them to worry about me being friendly to me or them not being friendly to me is a bee raised on, say, over 22% protein value, will hold the hive at the 25,000 bees. We need 90,000 bees. So you've got to breed the bees on a protein over over 22% and a good protein is 33, 36. So you've got to run your bees where you can get high protein so the bees will live for eight weeks because they'll die if they're raised on low protein in five weeks, like groundsel or a poor pollen source. So when you say protein, you're talking... Protein in the pollen. In the pollen. Pollen from the tree. Yeah, Yeah. okay. And they Mm. feast on that. You see them buzzing around those beautiful flowers Mm. and they're feasting away. So they they need a Mm. certain element of that Mm. uh, consumption to be able to to produce the honey. Yeah, so they turn that pollen into what we call bee bread and they store it in the hive. And then they feed the bee bread and the nectar to the young bees in the larvae. Wow, that's really interesting. Isn't that fantastic? So you're saying there's 95,000 bees in a um, a a honeybee colony. The queen lays 2,500 eggs a day in the month of September. Okay, so... And the theory is we have to get 13 frames of brood of the 2,500 per day, six weeks before we think the honey's going to come in at Jimna on the 20th of November. All right, so it's really, really scientific, isn't it? We do a lot of things, but the scientists that our federal organisation feed our funding money to, uh, they're the ones that do all the work at the Sunny Coast University. Mm. Like they do all the all the testing of the new manuka honey. Yes. And um, therefore our, our manuka honey gets tested by the Sunshine Coast University and it's funding funded by our levies that we pay for all the, all the honey we sell at, at 
to different places. So you've got a Manuka honey that we, we have in our mm. stores that mm. you would sell as well in mm. markets and things mm. like that and also your beautiful lip balm because there's a lot of nourishing qualities in honey. It's yeah. a, it it's, it's heals wounds mm. and has all sorts of purposes, doesn't it? Lots, so, of, lots of health yeah. benefits. So tell me a little bit about that and what are mm. they, you know, with the University of the Sunshine Coast, how did that kind of mm. partnership come about? Partnership came from our federal body and the funding from our federal body covers the uh, testing of the Manuka honey and the MGO on the honey can vary from Townsville, Bundaberg and uh, Evans Head as the different species. There's 96 different species of Manuka, but they're not all active right. for Manuka. So be your part of Charlie. What is an NGO when you say an NGO? It's the um, microactivity of the honey tested oh. by the university. Okay, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that all happens here on the Sunshine Coast yeah. as well. So your Manuka honey in particular is tested by the yep. University of the Sunshine Coast. Yep. And then what does that kind of dictate or does that sort of tell the story that it's a high quality, quality yep. healing, it's got high quality healing yeah. properties or? High quality healing properties and it's more expensive. So the higher the MGO number is, like our highest one this year is 327 plus which is when you see other labels, they've got 30 plus, which is nothing. Right. <laughs> so that goes on your label. And then people that are looking for a Manuka uh, honey to utilise yeah. for that, you can eat it, but you can also use it on oh, wounds, and, wounds everything. Yeah. And, and that sort of thing. So the first thing that when the Manuka started about 20 years ago, it was used because the third world countries, Wyandra in Africa, they were fighting and they had no antibiotics or anything like that for all the wounds. So they used honey in that. They used the honey, the Manuka honey, to spray the hospitals in England to get rid of Legionnaires' disease. Wow. So it's all, instead of building a new hospital, they, can, they spray a mist of Manuka over the building and then wash it. You know? Yeah, just incredible. So what creates healthy bees and healthy strong hives? Because that's important as well, isn't it? Oh, having a nice young queen and um, high protein value for the bees to work. And, and by shifting them from one spot to the next spot or waiting for a, a different species of tree to start flowering in October, September or November. When I think of a queen bee, I think of, you know, this gorgeous, mm. fabulous-looking bee with, you know, maybe a crown on their head that's big and tall and fabulous. Yeah. Is it? Do they look different to the other bees? Oh, they definitely are a lot bigger. You've heard of the royal jelly. Yes. So we've got a nice female egg. We feed the royal jelly to the female egg and that turns it into a queen. Right. The royal jelly does the work. And, but what we've done is we've kind of picked a, a, a strain of queen, her eggs, and we put them in a cell and they feed the royal jelly in the cell and then we get a little cell and then that um, wears the queen's hatch out. That's what the queen rearing is all about, trying to get a, what we call a, a third cross or a fourth cross generation. Because with the species of bees, by a straight generation of bees, Italians on one side and Caucasian on the other, a pure one, you would have to keep it alive so you can AI it, artificial dissemination of, of one strain of bee to the other to, to get a hybrid bee to gather honey. Goodness me. So you just have one queen, don't you? Well, generally one queen 
runs a hive, yes. Sometimes when we're making queens, we could have two queens, one in the top box and one in the bottom box, or you can put cells out and just have a little what we call a nuke box. So that's why they say you're as busy as a bee. Yeah. <laughs> busy bees, busy queens. So tell me, Charlie, do you have a, an interesting bee fact that always surprises people when you talk about bees? I think the most interesting one in the last few years uh, would be the um, uh, mating of a queen because um, the other year, a few years ago now in Western Australia, because Western Australia being a very rich state, they had 34 undergrads working in their university on bees and the undergrads worked with queen species and things like that. So one smart girl, she put her... um, mobile phone in the hive where the queen was going to uh, go out and mate. So by having the phone in there, she found out the queen went out and mated 90 times. Wow. She She was a busy bee. When she came back, you've got the mating sign in her and the bees pull the mating sign out so the phone could prove that the queen went out that many times. She is a busy girl. Goodness me. And we know that bees are really, really important to the ecosystem and, and to the environment and, the, you know, really fundamental mm. for lots of reasons. But how can the average person, you know, what can we do to help protect these amazing I, I, bees? I think a lot of people are now. They're planting plants that have a high protein value pollen in them. And the bees, they have plants that are attracting the bees to pollinate their own garden and things like that. So. Yeah, yeah, so what sort of plants would they be that, that we could... Oh, a pea bush, and the latest would be any of the manuka bushes. Yeah. You know, polygale, liversidgii, whitei. They're the most active, most uh, strongest uh, manuka type So we bushes. can all be a part of making sure that oh. we're helping the environment just by planting beautiful trees. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's a great message, isn't it? Now, Charlie, I want to know a little bit about uh, more about Charlie the man rather than Charlie the bee man. Now, I understand you have just been awarded a Hall of Fame because you're actually the Australian sailing coach as well at the Lake Catharabar Sailing Club. Tell me more about this. This is really fascinating because this is kind of almost bookend. So you've got you started out as a boat builder. Here you are, Australian sailing coach. Tell me more about that. The Australian sailing, they've changed their name a few times. You know, it used to be Yachting Australia and then Queensland Yachting and all that. So we've come all under the one umbrella at the moment. And uh, I'm a, a coach and I've taken kids to nationals and championships and state championships and um, trained a different line of kids, you know, and the families have travelled all around Australia, Darwin, Melbourne, Perth, to race in national championships round about Christmas times in junior boats mm-hmm. and and some senior boats too. That's awesome. So based at Lake Catharabar, yeah. which is near Pomona, which is where mm. you live near Noosa, mm. and are the um, sailing boats, are they like a just a single hull type sailing boat? Like are they small, large? Well, yeah. Um, the boats we use for training are a little bit different to what people race. The training boats we have are vagabonds and lasers and minnows and sabos and and Bix, which is just a training boat. We, what the training we do is every um, Sunday morning during the sailing season because we're going into winter recession now, and um, we start up again in September with the sailing for junior sailing in the morning and things like that. But most of the other sailing I've done is um, like I've built um, A-class cats, and you know the latest A-class cat now costs about sixty thousand mm. dollars. They actually foil out of the water. 
Goodness me, you're a man of many, many talents, aren't you, yeah. Charlie? And coming up through the sailing Queensland and, and yachting, as being a boat builder, we used to sail from Brisbane to Mooloola Bar overnight bay races and yachts mm. in the younger days and then went on to training, sailing dinghies and things like that. We started off for teams racing in the uh, schools. So we had a little big competition in Yapoon and and uh, some of our guys went over to represent the world teams racing. So it's been a, a lot of fun. Well, you really are a living legend, Charlie. So let's, uh, if you could share with us one last piece of advice. If you have a motto, you live your life by, what would it be? That's a good question. <laughs> be busy as a bee. <laughs> <laughs> Run on bees pee. <laughs> So, yeah, mainly just look after your fellow person and, and uh, see that most families are really happy. Fantastic, Charlie. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to catch up today. I absolutely love catching up with you. You're always full of interest and sharing and spreading the love and the joy about bees. You're in our stores with your beautiful tasting, your, your honey, and every time you come into one of our stores, you have the live bee display, which totally fascinates not just me but anyone that's walking past and the kids Mm. and it's just a beautiful thing you know sharing your knowledge sharing your passion so that people can understand more about this beautiful pure fresh local honey that you create and it's just an absolute joy uh, to catch up with you and thank you very much for being my guest today Oh, well, thanks for having us along, mate, and learning more about Charlie the beekeeper. Mm, <laughs> love it. The delivery man. <laughs> a locavore is a person who chooses to consume food that is grown, raised, or produced locally. This is the Locavore Podcast, brought to you by Whites IGA.